Alan Rusbridger, journalist and former editor-in-chief of The Guardian from 1995 to 2015, and you are the author of the new book, News and How to Use It. Welcome to Tell a Friend. Very pleased to be here. So let's begin with the subtitle of the book, which is What to Believe in a Fake News World. So tell me, how did we get in this predicament? Well, uh, I mean, the, the broad story is, is familiar. That, that for 250 years, the people who owned the printing presses and the broadcasting studios had a complete monopoly of what people read and listened to. Uh, they had very little choice. And in the space of 15 years, 4 billion people can now publish. And there's a, there's a tidal wave of stuff. Uh, some of it's very good, some of it's rubbish, some of it's dangerous. And people are losing a sense of what to believe and what not to believe any longer. Um, and uh, journalists, of course, um, would like people to believe them. You know, they, they say, look, we're, we're the professionals, come back to us. Um, but sadly, most of the surveys of trust say that, that actually the public find that difficult. So that was the sort of origins of the book, really. Now, during your tenure at The Guardian, uh, you were responsible for breaking many of the biggest stories uh, that we've seen, not least the phone hacking scandal, which you worked on with Nick Davies. So I wanted to know from you, what impact do you think the phone hacking scandal had on public trust in the media? Uh, ob obviously not good. Um, uh, I think the public will often be quite skeptical about the methods that journalists uh, use. Um, but here was evidence of widespread criminal behavior uh, in a newspaper group. Uh, we've since learned that it was more widespread in, in other newspaper groups as well. And I, I think it caused deep unease um, that uh, journalists really on a, on a sort of um, industrial scale were uh, intruding into people's privacy. Uh, and, and of course, it still goes on to this day in the sense that the, the newspapers are still paying out millions and millions and millions of pounds in court cases to try and settle these cases. Now, since the Leveson inquiry, and obviously since the scandal broke, have you seen any real cultural change in the way that Fleet Street operates? Yes, I, th I think there has been. Um, I, I would be amazed um, we wouldn't necessarily see it, but I, I would be amazed if journalists were behaving in the same criminal way, if they were using private detectives and inquiry agents quite so much, or at all. Uh, and I think there has been a sea change in, in views on privacy. I mean, there, there was a time, and the News of the World, of course, which closed over the phone hacking scandal, was the prime exponent of this. They, they used to try and wreck lives uh, every single week by putting somebody on the front page who had done something wrong, usually in their private life. And um, I think that's changed now. And so uh, Fleet Street feels uh, a different place and I would say a better place. Now, during your 20 years at The Guardian, um, could you give us a sense of what your overriding principle was uh, in conducting your, your work? Well, I, th I think, um, I mean, as a, as, a, as a broad statement of what, what The Guardian was about, it, it was about trying to write about things that were both true and important. 
you know, tried to be uh, internationalist to try and take a, a very wide view of, of the world and, and the um, influences on people's lives. It, it is um, a small L liberal newspaper, always has been since 1821. Uh, and when you become editor of the Guardian, they just say, can you continue as heretofore? That's all you're told. So you, you, you think about the instincts and traditions of the paper. Uh, and of course, during my time as editor, I also had the uh, additional challenge of trying to move from print to digital, which um, uh, was a, a huge and not easy revolution, which continues to this day. And whilst you were in that role, did you acknowledge uh, the level of power you had? I mean, The Guardian is, you know, one of the most read newspapers, um, read daily across the world. Were you aware of that? gatekeeping power you had? And if so, how did you go about managing it? Uh, yeah, it's a very strange thing. Where you, where you, when you become an editor, one day you're, you're reasonably anonymous. Um, nobody would recognize you in the pub or the street. And then the next day you're, you are the sort of figurehead of a, of a very important uh, institution and, and people hold you responsible for everything the paper does quite rightly. Um, and I was conscious of the power and quite uneasy about it because I think the, no one elects newspaper editors and, let, and yet they, they certainly try to influence uh, events. And I was particularly conscious that, that journalism is a very um, imprecise uh, craft, art, profession, whatever you want to call it, and that we make mistakes. And um, uh, it, it ought to be part of journalism to be very responsive to criticism and correction and clarification. So actually one of the first things I did was to appoint a, an independent reader's editor who would be responsible for correcting mistakes. So if anybody felt that we had got something wrong, they wouldn't come to the editor, the person who had made the mistake in the first place, they could go, they could uh, go behind the editor uh, to somebody who would then independently judge. And that was if you like, trying to give away a bit of power, because um, uh, because I think I think the power of editors can be troubling. And when you look at the rise of independent media, for example, you know this platform we're on right now, podcasting, social media, blog writing. Do you see the role of the traditional gatekeeper as being diminished? So, do you think that that role has almost been democratized? These alternative forms of media, including the one we're speaking on, can be um, excellent um, and, and sometimes better than mainstream media. Uh, you know, on, on Twitter, I find lawyers and doctors and governmental specialists who, who are really expert and uh, completely trustworthy. Um, and so journalism has got to raise its game to, to remain uh, trusted and relevant. Uh, at the same time, there's an awful lot of rubbish out there on social media. Um, and, but again, you know, journalism has to think, well, how can we persuade people that we are the ones who should be trusted? Um, and I think sometimes journalists don't think about that hard enough. They sort of expect that, that people will uh, trust them because they work for such and such a paper or such and such a brand or because they are who they are or just because they say I'm a professional journalist you ought to trust me um, but I think in the 21st century trust is earned in different kinds of ways some of which 
journalists haven't yet necessarily caught up on. Now in your book, you lay out, um, it's laid out in a alphabetical uh, format where you give people a sense of the process of making news. You almost remove remove that barrier behind uh, the reader and those in charge of producing news. And here you talk about horizontal leadership and you also talk about Grenfell in one of the sections and about the lack of media diversity. And I wanted to know from you, how do editors or, and journalists as a whole bridge that gap between the readers who are actually consuming their work and the people who are writing it? How do you bridge that gap and engage people in the process of news production? Yeah, well, I, I, think, I think there's a realization now in, in, um, in media that the, the audience they're addressing has obviously changed a great deal in the last 40, 50 years, and that it's commercial good business to, to want to engage those readers, but it's also editorially good. So um, if, if your newsroom is full of people who are all from a similar background, um, uh, then you're probably only going to be able to re reflect faithfully a, a fairly narrow segment of your readership. So there's lots of reasons to um, to try and broaden the diversity of, of people in newsrooms, both commercial and uh, editorial. Uh, and it's something that, that, that I think media organizations have really struggled to do, but are, are working up to. I, I mentioned Grenfell because there was, there was that sort of very poignant footage when, when you know, the, the day after the terrible fire, when journalists, nearly all of them white, probably most of the middle class turned up at, at Grenfell and there was an audience of, of, of an audience. There was a, a, a group of, of shocked people who lived in the tower or, or nearby um, who just didn't look at all like the, the, the people who were coming to report on them. And they were really angry. You, know, you may have seen that confrontation with, with Jon Snow. You know, he was a really nice, decent man. People shouting at him, you know, where were you? Why, 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 why did it take this to make you come down here? Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, it's time to think about these things. And to be fair to my colleagues in the, in the media, uh, I think they are. Now, when we, you know, if we turn our attention to the way that we actually respond to fake news, in the book, you talk uh, a lot at depth about the importance of fact checking and you talk about how in newsrooms um, employed fact checkers you know we're actually seeing them being you know taken away from this cycle of news production but I wanted to ask you do you really think that fact checking is the be all and end all answer because at times when newspapers are trying to respond to fake news when they're trying to um, kind of demystify uh, some of these uh, false claims that are being put out there uh, by politicians, by ordinary people, they fall into the trap of actually disseminating it further by trying to combat it. So how do journalists combat fake news but in a way that doesn't you know, help it spread? Well, it, I mean, it's entirely reasonable to ask that question of, of journalists, but I think it's a question for us already. I mean, this, this is now happening at such scale uh, and from the highest levels of society, Donald Trump, you know, the president of the United States on a daily basis would say um, 10, 20, 30 things that were untrue. 
um, and uh, the problem is the scale of it. it, it there, there are you know millions of untrue things being published um, uh, every day, and yes, journalism has to be part of the answer in terms of um, rev uh, ex exposing and and highlighting with with the danger that you highlight that that, that um, in in drawing attention to it, you you may be help spread it even, even if you're debunking it. But it's a very negative view of journalism just to be sitting there <laughs> sort of, as sort of uh, as sort of shit shovelers after the parade, you know, coming along and trying trying to clear up the mess that other people have created. And because if, if if that's all you did, you wouldn't be able to get on the front foot and uh, and and do um, important reporting of your own. So it's certainly what journalism is part of what journalism has to do now, regrettably. Um, but it's also important that journalists get out there and do original reporting. Uh, and we as readers have to be more skeptical about what we're reading and play our part. You know, we should never be retweeting stuff that we haven't checked to be true. Otherwise we're part of the problem. Yeah, and if I pick up uh, on that point, we do see this tendency for people to, you know, when in doubt, blame the media. But, um, you know, if we turn our attention to the responsibility of the reader, how do everyday people contribute uh, in combating fake news? You know, what, what can everyday people do who don't have necessarily the platform that you or other journalists have? What can they do? Well, I think we're all, we're all learning to be media, aren't we? Uh, we um, uh, we're not all journalists, but, but nevertheless, we are you know, every, everybody who goes to work or goes to a school or works in a hospital uh, or works in a shop, you know, all those organizations are now media. And if you've got a Twitter account or a Facebook feed or you're on Reddit or Instagram, then you're a form of media. And, and so we all have to think of our responsibilities about uh, what we publish, the tone of voice in which we publish. Uh, how we respond to criticism or how we respond when we're told that we're wrong about things uh, and whether, we, whether we're going to be part of the problem, as I said, by spreading uh, things that we haven't bothered to check uh, or we don't know if they're true or aren't true. Um, <clears throat> because if you've got four billion people publishing, it's going to take millions and millions of people acting as good citizens on, uh, on, the, the, on the internet to um, combat that. And if, if we look at um, the media landscape, like you've just said, in the sense that everyone kind of has that power to influence uh, using you know, social media, whatever media they have at use, do you think then um, the way that we're going about combating fake news and fighting its spread is, you know, not a very creative way, because often we look at it in a very top-down process. We, we look at politicians, we look at the way legislation can be changed, we look at the way that newspaper editors can play their role. Do you think we need to be more creative in actually looking at how do you combat this from the grassroots up? Uh, yes, I mean, we're, we're at a sort of um, juncture point where a lot, of, a lot of traditional media are now failing. You know, the, the economic model for, for news isn't the way there in the way that it was 20, 30 years ago. And yet we can also see what happens in a society when people don't know what to believe. If, you know, um, we're seeing it with COVID at the moment, you know, the, the, the argument over the science and over vaccines 
uh, and it, it's pretty crucial that, 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 that an awful lot of people are vaccinated for the general health of the, of the nation and the, to get everybody back to work. Uh, and yet there are people out there who are lying and spreading myths uh, about um, vaccines. Um, so these things become life and death um, matters in the end. Uh, and we've all got to get smarter about um, how we inform ourselves. Uh, and the fact that you, you do need, I think, arbiters of what's true and what's not true, what's fake and what's real, even if there's not a commercial model for it. And, you know, that's, um, in, in a way, plan A, uh, every journalist I know hopes that we could go back to you know, the, the world that we left behind with, you know, lots of advertising and lots of readers who are going to pay. But it may not work out like that. It may be that that, that that model has gone. And yet at the same time, journalism is needed as a public service, like the police or like an, an ambulance service or a prison service, something for which uh, there's no traditional market and yet there's a need. Now, how would you say editors go about balancing uh, this responsibility? Because they have a responsibility, obviously, to make sure that newspapers are still, you know, a functioning business. It's, it's still gaining uh, income and they can support their journalists. But how do they balance that financial responsibility with that moral and ethical responsibility that they have to report the news accurately? Well, I think I mean, the, the main the main job of an editor is to is to make sure that the the, the editorial content is you know a accurate and fair and reasonable and, and that they're looking at the, the editorial content. There's usually a commercial team whose job is to try and then make money out of it. But of course, you know, in the real world, editors increasingly get drawn into into thinking about that too. Um, I mean, there are editors who are, you know, brilliant commercially, and uh, I, I know some editors who also become sort of managing directors as well, so they're running everything. The danger is you get into that sort of separation of church and state business where really um, it's very hard to, to, to think very commercially and very editorially, you know. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you, if, if you're to persuade readers that... that that you are independent of all forms of power, including the power of advertisers, then it's difficult to uh, persuade people of that, I think, if you're also responsible for the advertising. Um, so um, uh, I, I guess what I'm saying is that uh, the editors today, I think, have, have to be commercially aware. and They're all trying to find new sources of revenue, new business models. But if they get too drawn into that, it's, it could be at the peril of, of the editorial um, product. Now, we've just had the American election, uh, which Donald Trump lost. And it led me to kind of think a newspaper is going to have an existential crisis because Donald Trump, whilst being you know, one of the biggest sources of fake news, is also one of the biggest source of income for a lot of the media because you know, they've just spent you know, four years pumping out all of this um, coverage on him, his campaign, and, you know, a lot of the misinformation he's been spreading. So do you, do you think newspaper gatekeepers are really going to struggle for, you know, how do we get people interested again? 
Well, I, I think there's a lot in that. I think it was the Washington Post yesterday. Did they had a range of charts of, of, of coverage of Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, Donald Trump versus anybody, and he has been a, a source of obsession and compulsion for the last four years, uh, and ratings. Um, uh, you know, the New York Times has arguably never done better. I think partly because Donald Trump kept attacking it. And the more Donald Trump said this is a fake news operation, the more people rushed to support it. Um, so I think that it, it will be different. I mean, I, personally, I feel America will be a healthier place without Donald Trump. Um, but in a way, um, you have to be honest and say, well, actually, he was good for ratings and circulation, not for much else. Now, in Nick Davies' book, Flat Earth News, he talks about this broken news, newsroom cycle. So he talks about the increasing uh, pressures that are being made on journalists, the financial cuts that are being made, which, you know, ring very true um, for where we are at now with the coronavirus pandemic and the media cuts we've been seeing. Do you think that this uh, financial pressure and this slimming down of the newsroom is also playing a role in uh, preventing journalists from actually doing you know, thorough investigations and thoroughly fact-checking the information that they're putting out there? Well, everything's all happening at once. So um, when, when Nick and I started in journalism, uh, you had a really relatively leisurely day. You, had a, you, you filed your copy by somewhere between 6 p.m. and 8 p.m and then went off to the pub. Um, uh, and that was the sort of the one deadline in the day, broadly. Um, and now, of course, in, in, anybody working in a newsroom is having to do four, five, six stories or updates or takes or different media. Um, uh, and so the, the, the productivity has shot up, the speed has shot up, the, the, the multitasking has shot up. And the danger, I mean, not, not all of that is bad, but the danger is you get into what Nick described as churnalism, where you're just churning it out. You're, you know, the press release is here, you've got an hour to write the story, you don't have any time to make calls or independently verify it, you're just churning your way through and regurgitating uh, stuff without really being able to verify it. Now that's, that's I mean, it, it's, it's God, God-forsaken work to have to do but also, it's very damaging, I think, for the for, for the for the reputation of journalism. If if journalism is about verification and context and uh, having time to to think about it and make some calls or meet people, uh, and 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 that's what people believe journalism is. But in fact, it's not because the the economics aren't there, and at the same time, they're all being asked to do this. Newsrooms are getting smaller because the revenues are shrinking. I mean, you can see why, why the danger uh, is that, um, that, that journalism makes itself redundant because it, it's no longer creating something of value and worth. That, that, that's, the, that's, the, that's the gloomy story that, that is happening in some places, we have to be honest. And finally, I wanted to just get, you know, a piece of advice to you for all of the listeners who you know, maybe skeptical about everything that they're seeing in the media, may you know, have a lack of trust both in politics and uh, of journalists. 
what advice would you give them? Well, be skeptical. I think skeptical is good. And, you know, we're newspapers and reporters are right to be skeptical. And that's what you want them to be. Don't be cynical. Cynical is, is something which is much more toxic and, uh, and sort of defies belief in anything. But I think as, as, as active readers, we can be uh, much more skeptical about sources. And then in the end, you have to make your decisions about who you trust. Uh, and and realize why it's important that we have an informed population. Uh, you know, during Brexit, the citizens themselves were asked to, to vote on, on an issue, and it was vital that people were really informed about all sides of that argument. Whether they were or not is a, is a different issue, but um, there's a direct relationship between trustworthy news and a good society. Um, uh, and places that don't have trustworthy news in the end either turn into dictatorships or, or chaos happens. Um, so I think we, the, the point of writing this book was to try and get both journalists and audiences to think about this problem of trust uh, and, you know, of which skepticism is a, a very important uh, part of the story. Now, at the end of all my interviews, I have a quick fire round uh, just to get to know you a little bit better. So I invite you to complete the sentence. The first one, the biggest misconception about me is. Uh, the, the, well, the, the biggest misconception about me was that I was the guardian. It, 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 it's by which I mean, People thought they knew me because they read the, the paper or that I, I agreed with everything in my own paper. And sometimes I felt that actually, you know, I'm an independent person. I, I agree with some of it. I don't have to agree with it to publish it. Um, and I, I'm, I'm probably quite a different person from the sort of person that you think when you read The Guardian. Sorry, that's, that, that wasn't very quick far, was it? My biggest fear is... Uh, Probably rats. Yes. My biggest regret is uh, not not working harder at music. When I I'm, I'm, I'm a mad keen musician, I, I, I play a lot of music, and I wish I'd practiced harder when I was younger. I'm most proud of. Most proud of editing the Guardian and. and um, taking it on that journey from print to digital while keeping its integrity and its seriousness and, um, and, and putting it on a sort of path to the future. And finally, the hardest lesson to learn was? Mm. I think to, to keep it, to keep it, I mean, it's very, it's the easiest thing in journalism. It's such a compulsive thing. Now, I've seen a lot of journalists who, who just sort of do it 18 hours a day and they lose all sense of anything else and it becomes an obsession. And I think the hardest thing to learn was to try and find something else in life and, 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 and do it. You know, family is important. 
for me, music was important, but all that made me, uh, uh, when, when I got into balance and I didn't always get into balance, um, the, the, the things that you did that might, people might think of as non-essential actually made me a, a better in my working life because I, you know, I somehow felt calmer or, or more prepared for the day. Alan Rusbridger, thank you very much for joining me on television. I, I want to remind everyone to go and get your book, News and How to Use It, which, you know, is a great read. So I thank you for that. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Thank you.